Hey, thanks for joining me. My name is Jeffrey Rickman. This is a Plain Spoken Podcast. If you've watched this before, you kind of know what I do. I do some interviews. I do some analysis on special topics. And I've also been going down the line of annual conferences and kind of explaining what's going on in different areas. The intention here is uh, not to blast anybody or to exacerbate tensions. Rather, um, I am uh, sympathetic with conservatives. I'm a conservative myself, and as I've spoken with conservatives around the United Methodist Church, there's often a feeling that people just don't know what's going on, and I think it's just helpful to know what's going on in different areas. So last week I reported on the Great Plains Annual Conference just north of me, and they're getting along very well. They're doing disaffiliation very well. There are other annual conferences that are not doing so well, and this last week, in fact, uh, under a week ago, the uh, the Baltimore-Washington Annual Conference had a NCLL, that's a National Center for Life and Liberty, they filed on behalf of 38 churches in their annual conference. Uh, they are they're petitioning the annual conference to let them go, and they are filing suit against them. So we're going to look at uh, some of the documents pertaining to that. Uh, the reason that they've done this, and uh, I've got it up on my screen, this is from an article called Moving the Needle, which uh, Jay Thorell, head of the WCA, wrote in October of last year. There was an initial article that he put out called Let Our People Go, in which there were 19 annual conferences that had given um, hard provisions for exit. So paragraph 2553 is now the only disaffiliation measure in our Book of Discipline, whereby people can leave the denomination. And uh, we had one previous that the Judicial Council now said was now null and void because 2553 is in, pre in place. And according to the language of 2553, the Conference Board of Trustees can um, augment what needs to happen before people disaffiliate. So there are baseline things that need to happen but then um, conference boards of trustees can put additional measures in place. Um, so Great Plains Annual Conference put nothing in place. It's bare bones. It's as easy as possible. In fact, they even applied some conference reserves to make it easier for churches to get out. Um, Baltimore-Washington is kind of an opposite case scenario. Um, this Moving the Needle article that Thorell wrote says that some of the conferences of the original 19 did make things easier for churches to go, and kudos to them. Other conferences really haven't budged. The Baltimore-Washington Annual Conference, the most egregious thing about their disaffiliation agreement is that they charge 50% of the fair market value of the real estate owned by churches uh, and return of all restricted funds. So when that is in place, how many churches do you know that are able to summon 50% of the fair market value of their building? Uh, there are not many. So, of course, this has resulted in a situation where many churches that want to leave cannot leave, um, and then uh, they don't pursue that, and so the conference is able to say, hey, things look pretty good here. Not many people want to disaffiliate. And so these 38 churches are filing suit to say, no, things are not okay here we are pretty sure that you're trapping us here. And I think I'm summing up their case pretty well. Before we get into the, the conflict, let's just look at the conference that we're dealing with. Um, I've got their Facebook page pulled up, and I'll, I'll say about this the same thing I'm going to say about their website. Whoever they've got in charge of this stuff, everything looks really good. Um, they, they have good taste. Uh, I think their website looks great. Their, their Facebook page looks great. Their Facebook page information is a little dated. 
uh, but it, it had some information on here about them. Uh, the Baltimore-Washington Conference of the UMC is made up of 1,032 clergy and 1,064-plus lay members in 632 churches in Maryland, Washington, D.C. Um, the Panhandle of West Virginia and Bermuda, that's pretty cool. Each Sunday, more than 59,231 United Methodists gather in this region for worship. Throughout the week, more than 210,000 uh, people uh, worship and uh, participate in local ministries. So it goes down the line a bit there. That's pretty dated. There's been significant drop-off since then. Um, according to 2020 figures, they're only now seeing uh, less than 40,000 people in worship each week. Their membership has dropped to um, less than 140,000 people, so they, they've been in decline. Um, they now only have 603 churches, so when that was written, it was 632. It's down to 603. Only two have been able to disaffiliate so far, um, so they're a lot more in the hopper, and we'll talk actual numbers. Um, I asked about the size of their budget, and it looks to be more than $18 million uh, for 2024. That's larger than my conference. I'm, I'm in Oklahoma. We have roughly a little less than 400 churches and a budget of 10 million uh, plus. Uh, when we're looking at the balance of this annual conference, theologically, uh, how it's composed, it is majority liberal. To, to, to my understanding, it is the oldest annual conference, and it is the most racially diverse annual conference. Um, by, you know, there's no formal way to, to, to measure this stuff. It looks like of the elders they have, only about 25 are conservative. Now, whenever I'm talking about conservative liberal, uh, one of the things that complicates this is race, and I'm going to talk about that more in a couple minutes. But of the, of the evangelical conservatives that are of the, the, the model that would potentially work with the WCA, the Wesleyan Covenant Association. There are about 25. Um, there are about 50 local licensed pastors that would be conservative. And then when you look at the laity, I mean, anywhere across the United States, the laity are, uh, I think, without exception, always more conservative than the clergy in a given region. So anywhere between 35 to 45 percent of the, the laity uh, in the churches on an average Sunday morning are probably conservative. Um, now, the thing that, that complicates this picture or, or makes it uh, more dicey is the racial divide. Um, as I said, it, I think it's the most racially diverse conference out of all of our annual conferences. Roughly 25 percent of the church's clergy conference delegates are black. Um, their bishop, uh, uh, Bishop Easterling, is a black woman. Um, I, I knew of her whenever I went to school at Boston University School of Theology. She is um, an evangelical liberal, and there aren't many of those. Uh, by all accounts, she is quite um, a, an amazing person, and uh, she, she represents the black constituency on the Council of Bishops alongside many others. Um, but then she also uh, clearly resonates with the black constituency in her annual conferences. Um, now, the thing about the black-white divide, and I think I'm speaking accurately about national um, trends, generally speaking, the black population in America is liberal politically and then more conservative theologically. 
but they do not generally, up till this point in history, they have not really come alongside white evangelicals that would see things religiously the same because of political divide. So even though the um, Democratic Party was the party in which the KKK was formed and flourished for decades, uh, if you don't know this history, the political history in the U.S., there is a theory promoted by the Democratic Party that there was something called the Southern Strategy where the Republican Party uh, became the party of racism. They made overtures to racists in the South in order to get them to join the party. So even though uh, racism used to be primarily within the Democratic Party, it switched to the Republican Party. And of course, the Republican Party is undergirded by white evangelical Protestants. So within this conference, it seems to hold true, as it does throughout the, the American religious political milieu, that even though black people would get along better theologically with white evangelicals, they see white evangelicals as the bad guy. And so this is something that, that Bishop Easterling has played into over the last couple of years, and um, the WCA and evangelicals have largely, not largely, they have been caricatured as racists. Um, and for that reason, you don't find any kind of cooperation between white evangelicals and black churches in this conference. There are black churches exiting. In fact, the, the two churches that exited uh, last year were black churches, but they generally have nothing to do with the WCA or white uh, renewal and reform coalition uh, organizations. They've just been reluctant to believe that, that that's going to go well. Um, according to, to one person I spoke with at annual conference 2019, distrust is still so high between the w black church churches and white churches that uh, there was a, a very uh, firm move on the floor of annual conference to uh, make it the case that any black church buildings that are sold, their funds would not be combined with white church buildings that are sold, that they have a separate fund that cannot be taken advantage of. There's, there's, there's still a good deal of suspicion. Um, as I understand it, the black population in this annual conference sees the institution of the UMC as something that has dignified and liberated them and is not at all going to be a threat to them theologically, uh, with some exceptions. So um, let's move on a little bit. Latrell Easterling is the bishop. She's also the bishop of the Pennsylvania-Delaware Annual Conference. Um, something that's interesting to note, I said I said Pennsylvania. That's not true. It's Peninsula-Delaware. I mean, that always confuses me. But Peninsula-Delaware, she got appointed there um, after they had already put a disaffiliation agreement in place that did not have the 50% property value addition, and after she came, the Board of Trustees changed it to the same thing as Baltimore, Washington. So that kind of, you know, one of the things that she said is, hey, this is what the Board of Trustees decided. I, I don't have anything to do with it. Well, the fact that the Board of Trustees at her new conference decided to do the exact same thing once she came along makes it sound not very realistic that that's the case. So anyway, this is the, the annual conference's website. As I said, it looks fabulous. Uh, I think it's the best-looking website I've seen for any of the annual conferences, uh, including mine. Um, <laughs> I hope it's okay that I uh, uh, am not... Anyway, whatever. Let's go on. Um, the About section on the annual conference website adds a little bit more. 
The Baltimore-Washington Conference uh, connects 603 churches. Okay, so this is updated from Maryland's Chesapeake Bay through the National Halls of Power in Washington, D.C., amid Baltimore's vibrant streets and up among the Allegheny Mountains in western Maryland and the panhandle of West Virginia. Man, that sounds so picturesque. Uh, the conference's 1,025 clergy and 134-plus lay members led by Luttrell Easter, Bishop Luttrell Easterling live out their faith, certain of the vision that transformed lives, transform lives. And then it has some more stats and vision and mission. Um, good blueprint for annual conference websites, just saying. This is the map of the annual conference. They have six, eight, sorry, I can't count, eight districts. And uh, in case you don't know where they fit in, okay, that was a larger map I pulled up. Um, they're down here. So this is the national map. This is the best one I can find. I need to do better at collecting maps. Um, but they're down there. So Peninsula Delaware is right there. Baltimore, Washington's right there. They're all combined. A um, lot of United Methodists in that area. Now, Bishop Easterling, uh, so it calls her the Episcopal servant leader and leader of the conference. It is the oldest and most diverse annual conference in the UMC and she is the first woman to lead this historic conference. Bishop Easterling was appointed to this office in 2016 following her election to the Episcopacy that July. So um, unfortunately, there are racial things at, at play here. Um, my short commentary on that is after the 1960s up until recently, the vision of a colorblind society has been lifted high. And so that, that means that we've tried to remove any, any kind of legislation that treats people unequally based on the inalienable characteristics of ethnicity. Um, and that was the shared vision until recently when it was, it's still noted that there are disparities that, that correspond with uh, these ethnic markers. And so something called anti-racism racism has come about where the, the vision for the moment is we need to look at the racial implications of everything we say and do. There is nothing that can be racially uh, unbiased um, or colorblind. And when you insist on colorblindness, you're actually perpetuating the unequal treatment of people with black and brown bodies. I think I've said that in a way that people who uh, believe that would agree with me uh, or recognize themselves. So anti-racism, and the main proponent of this is Ibrahim X. Kendi, uh, advocates for separate black spaces uh, to preserve black culture and be protected against whiteness and um, notions of collective guilt, uh, particularly white guilt or collective virtue. These are things that correspond with modern anti-racism. And what's, what's going on now is, is that's taking uh, ascendancy, particularly within the Democratic Party, and it's affecting um, integration and cooperation between black and white populations. And you're seeing that in this annual conference where uh, rather than conservative black and white congregations working hand in hand together against an institution that is increasingly liberal and promoting liberalism, white and black congregations have been uh, effectively, I mean, it sounds like they were never really walking hand in hand to begin with. The conservative white folks I spoke with said they have made overtures to the black uh, conservatives, and there really just hasn't been able—they haven't been able to connect uh, in any meaningful fashion, which is really unfortunate. 
in the midst of this, I'm going to play a short section of a video um, that has very much informed the present situation in Baltimore, Washington. This is Bishop Easterling um, doing a town hall. It was last year, and I want to say September. It was online, and she was trying to set the record straight. I think that's what the event was called, setting the record straight, and she was combating misinformation, um, and, and she made she brought it explicitly to race. So this is in the context of a question about paragraph 2553 and how it's, um, it's being used for things other than what it was explicitly designed to do. So the explicit language is stuff around the LGBTQ language in the Book of Discipline and or um, actions or inactions of the annual conference around those topics. So the question is asked, is it being used that way? And she's saying, really, it's being used as a catch-all for lots of things. And then she says this. It's unfortunate that congregations are sort of exploiting this opportunity with the relaxation of the trust clause to leave the United Methodist Church. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. I think as many congregations are leaving because of the issue of race than they are human sexuality. Uh, and so it's unfortunate, uh, again, that this opportunity is being exploited in this way. Um, but people are choosing to leave for uh, for several reasons, not just human sexuality. So that was just a little blurb. It was almost as an afterthought. She went on from there. But uh, the, the clear implication is that people who are wanting to disaffiliate from the United Methodist Church are the racists. Okay, so as black people are listening to their bishops speak on this, then they, they look like uh, the same kind of suckers that, you know, black people who voted for Donald Trump. Don't you know that this is coded that, uh, you know, Donald Trump is a racist and these white evangelicals that are leaving the UMC, they are the racists and, and you really don't want to be with them. So, of course, this caused uh, a big stink because um, I do not know of any evangelical conservatives within the United Methodist Church that would identify as racist. And by that, I mean the classical sense of racist where uh, these folks want to be colorblind. They want a future in which white and black people are living together uh, like it's no big deal, just like the Irish used to be separate and, and hated and now are part of society, just like the Italians. That's how they want it to be with black and white people. Uh, but that's not going to be possible while leaders in government or leaders within the church are continuing to highlight uh, disparities in behavior and infer a racial component to them where there may not be one. Uh, so far as I can tell, there is not any sort of valid assessment of this situation where there's a, 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 a racism or a racist component to these decisions being made. So far as I'm concerned, and the vast majority of conservatives who look at this, the decision is being made because of theological drift that's been taking place for over 100 years and has finally just reached a breaking point. Uh, the assessment of people like me is that the United Methodist Church was an experiment in a big tent, and the big tent is now on fire, and the, the circus animals are trampling people, and you, you've got to get out because it's, it's going to destroy churches, uh, and that's what we're seeing. So I stole that metaphor from somebody else. I can't think of his name. Um, before we get into the legal documents and the things being said, um, the only other thing I wrote down to, to note was uh, there are two big churches that are disaffiliating Oakdale and Olney, Maryland, and Mount Zion in Bel Air. And I was told that neither of these are um, looking at joining the Global Methodist Church after they leave. 
I was also told that the conference uh, leadership is particularly interested in where churches are going if they disaffiliate, where they want to go. And um, the, the language seems to have been, you can go anywhere, just don't go to the Global Methodist Church. They, they seem particularly concerned that the Global Methodist Church do not benefit from any churches that they lose, which that's not the first time I've heard anything like that. That's just interesting to me. I don't know why that would be of particular concern, but I, I guess it is. So let's look at the legal documents just a little bit, because that's always interesting to me, and it's not every day I actually read through um, <laughs> legal documents. But I, I took the time here, and um, what you should see is uh, <laughs> what looks like legal documents. This was filed in the Circuit Court of Maryland for Anne Arundel County. I probably said that wrong. And the church at the head of it is uh, Cape St. Clair I know the pastor there, but he didn't want to talk to me about this because obviously um, conservatives are often afraid of the uh, implications of, of spreading information of their conference outside of their conference. So it just lists off all of the different um, churches, and then it gives an introduction where a lot of the reasons are laid out. And this is a long document. We're not going to make our way through all of it. But it uses language that at the front end is incendiary, so it uses words like ransom, uh, host, I, I, I didn't, maybe they say hostage. There's, there's definitely a notion of entrapment. Um, they make accusations of gross financial impropriety. I think that was a phrase that they used. Um, and then they, they lay things out um, in a way that I would recognize. Now, I talked to some of the pastors that are a part of this 38 church lawsuit, and what they said is the only sticking point for them really is the 50% property value being tacked on. If that wasn't on there, they could exit in peace. They could go through the process well. Uh, but since that's in place, they're essentially trapped. So this is their only option. Um, the other thing to note there, what was, oh, the, the time limit on this is running out. There is no special called annual conference for later this year for churches to disaffiliate. The deadline is April 30th to get out. Any churches that haven't gone through the 2553 process by then, paid everything, submitted everything, cannot get out unless General Conference 2024 provides another way out, which I'm pessimistic about that, as are many. Let's look at some sections that I highlighted in this. Um, I'll just, um, well, I'll start point two. This position is inconsistent. The financial ransom position is inconsistent with the decades-long pattern and practice of the United Methodist Church to allow local churches to disaffiliate and retain their church property without paying a ransom. So it's highlighting paragraph 2548.2. I really wish that somebody would do a big study on this and look at how many churches actually were allowed to disaffiliate under that provision, where they went. I, I don't think there's any central resource where that's been compiled. But I know within my own conference, that's something that was exercised until 2553 came about. Um, what is more, it reflects a substantial material change in circumstances that was not anticipated by either the plaintiff churches or defendants at the time the plaintiff churches affiliated with the United Methodist Church. So this is a, a, an argument that recurs throughout the document several more times. I would say at least a dozen that, look, when they joined the United Methodist Church, they didn't know that they would be trapped. I'm not sure, and I'm generally, you know me, sympathetic with conservative churches. I, I think they did know. 
You know, I think conservative churches who joined the United Methodist Church generally, or at least the representatives, knew about the trust clause. It's always been a part of the United Methodist Church. The part they didn't know, the part they didn't suspect, was that the whole superstructure of the denomination could be taken over by people who are hostile to the traditional heritage of Methodism. That would just sound, if you went back 40 years and said, did you know that there's going to be a liberal takeover of the denomination? So many would have said, that's a conspiracy theory. They are never going to get the upper hand. Fine, they might have the academy. We're always going to stay strongly rooted in, in traditional Wesleyanism. Uh, it's just really hard to imagine, until you're in it, the situation that we're in. And still so many people cannot reckon with the reality of the situation we're in because it's so inconceivable. So anyway, leave that stand for how it does. Anyway, continued enforcement of the alleged trust as a mechanism to penalize plaintiff churches for disaffiliating is unlawful and contrary to the intent of the parties and the gospel mission of each church. So if you haven't been following the stuff legally going on in different states, each state has a different disposition towards ecclesiastical authorities. And so whenever there's a, a dispute within the church over theological issues, most of the states, as I understand it, refuse to get involved. They defer entirely to the ecclesiastical authority and just say, y'all, solve it yourself, you know. Um, and so what they're, this is one of those states, and so what they're doing is saying this is not a, an issue of theology or ecclesiastical authority. What's happening here is unlawful and plainly wrong, and here's why the state can and should be involved. Um, the only other thing I wanted to highlight from this, I just knew I needed to hit on it. Why, I don't know why they list all the ones again, but I'm not a lawyer. Um, is this language in point 48, the United Methodist Church is not a hierarchical religious organization, but rather a covenant-based organization where the church and the defendant are in an ecclesiastical covenant-based relationship. So this is going to be a, a real point of disagreement between the legal filing and the 38 churches it represents and the bishop's response, and she has language that directly counters this. Um, is it a hierarchy or is it a covenant body? Uh, and in the midst of that are words like connectional and conciliar, um, stuff for people smarter than me to wrestle with, but I'm going to wrestle with it anyway. There's a lot more in this document that you can and, and should look at, um, but I, I, I don't know, I don't have time or energy for it. Um, the other thing I wanted to pull up, so that was written, though, that legal filing took place on, let's see, when was that? That was on the 13th of this month. The bishop answered on the 20th of this month with this uh, letter that you should see now. And of course, I've highlighted the portions that I think are interesting. I, I key into this better. I've just read a lot more bishops and churches letters. I, I know a lot of the code here. And the first thing, and you're going to see it in the WCA response here too, is the emotive language, the, the stuff that has to do with emotions. So in the very beginning, it says, it is with sadness that the Baltimore-Washington Conference of the UMC informs you that the conference has been sued by 38 churches. Um, I've said it, I think the first time I said it was in assessing Bishop Mueller's words on the floor of annual conference. Um, I don't doubt that some people actually are sad or upset but I do question how helpful that is to say, and I think it's overt emotional manipulation a lot of the time. Uh, we live in a culture right now where uh, feelings often trump facts or realities. So if there's a party that feels aggrieved and broadcasts that, that's a bid for sympathy 
and affirmation on the part of the reader. I just don't think it's appropriate for leadership. Uh, I'm going to say the same thing with the WCA. I just don't think it's a way that adults really handle things or should. Anyway, there's some numbers here. So 38 churches are definitely on that um, document. Once again, she says, we are deeply grieved, deeply grieved. Uh, by this, we seek to be united in love and mission. And once again, you have this caricature that why, what's wrong with these hateful, bigoted conservatives? Don't they see we just want to love and get along? And they're just being so divisive and mean. Um, so says we don't comment on ongoing litigation. And then the the rest of the, the, the document is establishing their argument for litigation. Uh I already told you that the bishop is is blaming the current policy on the uh, board of trustees. That's what that next paragraph is about, and they're establishing their legal right to set the uh, conditions for disaffiliation. Um, then they talked about how there was a relatively small number of churches of varying sizes uh, that have tried to disaffiliate, and of course the WCA rebuts that by saying uh, it wasn't until last year or the year before that there was even a process in place. Um, so this is going to come into the—well, I'll talk about it with the next letter. But um, anyway, something else that conference leadership has often done is said, um, there just hasn't been much interest in disaffiliation. I mean, all of a sudden there's a few. They, they try and kind of like make it sound like just an unhappy small minority, just some weird bigots off to the side— not acknowledging that there's been a huge general interest on the part of conservatives within the denomination for a long time to get this thing figured out and to split off. So um, at the time of this statement, um, I'm going to skip that connectional obligations piece because we'll come back to it in a second. 85 churches have formally entered the disaffiliation process, and the language here is confusing. Uh, as I understand it, the 38 churches are a part of these 85 churches. They've, they've already submitted to the annual conference their desire to see the numbers and, and figure out how to get out, and those numbers they've been given are untenable. So of these 85 churches, 38 have now filed suit. There are a good 20 that WCA leadership knew about that are just going to pay up. They can afford to. They're going to do it. They're going to get out. What's to be done with the rest? I'm not sure that they have made a decision. So here's the section where the bishop argues with the legal language, the UMC is a hierarchical and connectional denomination. So you don't see covenant in here. Um, it's a connectional and then as a conciliar church. So these are the three uh, positions. The notion is that because we have bishops, elders, deacons, laity, there is a, a hierarchy in place, and that's how it operates. And the inference there is what the leadership at the top says goes. Um, I think that that's a misreading of United Methodist ecclesiology. I think that would be true for the Roman Catholic Church or the Episcopalian Church. I don't think that's how we really see our bishops. Um, connectional, there was an interesting article written by David Scott this last week talking about what that word means. This is a word that is being repeated more and more by United Methodist leadership that you're kind of going, are you sure you know what that means? Um, it's kind of being used in a hierarchical sense, like we're all connectional, so the will of a local body can be overruled by the connectional body of the annual conference or the general conference. That's not really the way in which connectional was used in its original sense. So I, I think that that's kind of a, a, well, a false rendering and understanding of what connectional means. 
Now, conciliar is totally accurate, and that just means rule by council. When a council assembles, it makes decisions, and those decisions should be obeyed and, and enforced by the leadership that's appointed to that task. And the problem of the UMC is the connectional or the conciliar will of the body of the general conference has not been protected and enforced by the bishops. Um, and rather than arguing against that now, most of them are just saying, look, the only reason you can disaffiliate right now is stuff dealing with the LGBTQ, uh, SOGI uh, stuff, gender theory stuff. If you're dissatisfied with the institution, uh, sorry, there is no way out for you, which I, I think, well, the legal filing um, at one point, I'm not going to find it. I, I wouldn't find it if I set it aside right now. But it's on three quarters down, and it, it lays that out, how there just is no way out for people who are not when, willing to bend uh, to the will of the annual conference and its leadership. All it says is, it's a whole line, it says, this cannot be. It's just so flagrantly, obviously wrong that we cannot allow this to be. Um, all right, so uh, what these churches that are suing the conference seek is vastly different from our open and transparent process, which occurs in the church conferences and at our annual conference session. So you know if you listen to me, I'm big on transparency. I'm big on uh, everything being brought into the light. I do not know how they say this. You know, the process by which these things were designed with the board of trustees is behind closed doors. You know, this is... The Board of Trustees do not give their notes out to people who want to see them. Um, they do not invite, uh, I mean, I know in my conference there was one meeting where they invited constituencies to come in and represent the conservative cause. But ever since then, no, the doors are closed. And that is par for the course in conference um, affairs. doesn't matter what paragraph 722 says, which is our Open Meetings Act. Um, these decisions are made behind closed doors by unelected conference officials a lot of the time. So I don't say how she says it's transparent. Moreover, the WCA, yes, often has to operate behind closed doors as well. It's for fear of retribution. So one of the things I didn't, well, it was kind of clear, when you're looking at the breakdown of this annual conference, it is dominated by liberals. You know, they're clearly in the majority. And as I talked to the conservatives in the conference, they said, yeah, there's some open hostility sometimes from left-leaning people, but there's also just a, they do not comprehend us. They do not understand us. When we talk to them and try and dialogue with them, so many of them are just looking at us blankly with the do not compute thing. Sometimes it's hostile. Sometimes it's just, I don't know how to make sense of you. And so uh, the WCA fears how they're going to be interpreted if they operate out in the open. But that being said, They've, they've spoken pretty boldly and clearly. They were the ones who generated that video that I played of Easterling a minute ago, and then they are writing an article that I'm going to read out loud here in a minute. So um, this next paragraph is, is something that I would consider holding hostage, holding uh, finances and mission hostage. Um, and this isn't the only place we've seen it, but there are a lot of conference authorities who say, look, if we allow you to disaffiliate and just go and we don't take money from you, this has huge financial ramifications. And I don't think that's necessarily dishonest, but I think, one, there's been plenty of time to see this coming and uh, make provision for it. And two, this is what happens when you allow for dysfunction for long periods of time. There's a, there's a, there's, there's a fallout from that. And I don't think it's, I mean, it's like our federal government, how we just keep printing money and going into debt 
because we've just got to fund all the things. We can't possibly consider just not funding all the things. And then to have that replicated in the United Methodist Church just means that you're building this big balloon that's that's going to pop. It's unsustainable. Um, so, yeah, I get a little political on this one, I guess. Um, so as a servant leader of such a diverse and dynamic conference, it breaks my heart. So that's three overt appeals for emotional sympathy in this, that any feel the need to withdraw from our connection. It is possible to hold differing theological beliefs and loving remain united as disciples of Jesus Christ. Um, that last piece I just think is disingenuous at this point. I think there's so much open hostility. Um, yes, there's been some on the right, but I think from the left, I mean, it's just so flagrant. I don't think we can seriously talk about happily being in the same tent anymore when there are so many who see people like me as uh, racists and bigots and homophobes that are aimed at the destruction of vulnerable people. I mean, that's just a caricature that's continually lifted up, and no matter what I or people like me say, we're continually just forced into that box. And at a certain point, you just have to say, look, this is no good for anybody. we got to allow for se uh, separation, but instead... There's this cage match, and that they know they hold the positions of power, and eventually they can just get everybody to vote with their feet and leave, you know, as one bishop said uh, earlier this week. So the last document to look at is the uh, WCA response to the bishop's letter, and, uh, you know, to their credit, they answered. A lot of conservatives are just... Um, when they get a response, they just go, oh, we hurt somebody's feelings and we look like the bad guys, so we just need to be quiet and keep our head down. They didn't do this. They, they, they had a rebuttal, but they began in the same way. We read with grief the statement by Bishop Easterling, and I'm sure it caused some grief, but once again, I just don't think it's helpful or mature to, to do this emotional thing when you need to just stand on principles and facts. And so one of the things that they go right into is Bishop Easterling was one of the signatures on the protocol, and if you don't remember... Uh, sometimes called the Feinberg Protocol, but uh, we had constituencies from left, right, center that got together um, in 2019 after the General Conference and uh, created, no, it was early 2020, um, they created what we shortly called the Protocol, it had a much longer title, where the provision was we need to create a conservative denomination that evangelical conservative traditionalists churches can flock to. The UMC will give, I think, $10 million for its establishment, and um, we'll, we'll work out all the finances and movement. There were vo votes in a certain way. But then whenever COVID hit and General Conference was pushed back time and time again, eventually um, the left kept pushing and the institution kept putting things off, and the right had to split off. They, they felt they had to. I kind of pushed Jay Thorell on that on my interview I just did with him, so keep your eyes peeled for that. But anyway, Easterling was one of the left-leaning voices that whenever the, the the dynamic shifted, all of a sudden she doesn't support the protocol anymore. I don't know that she's officially come out against the protocol. However, what she has been doing in her conference obviously works against the sentiment and principles of the protocol. I would be very surprised if anyone could make a coherent case against what I just said. Um, so they're, uh, they once again use language implicating the annual conference leadership at being primarily concerned about money and not integrity. So out of 54 conferences in the U.S., ours is one of only 15 that have chosen to pursue unreasonable enrichment by adding tens of millions of dollars 
to exit fees. Now, whether or not the incentive is to gain in money or just entrap churches so that they look more functional than they are, uh, or maybe there are other motivating factors in place. I don't know. I'm not going to pretend to... I can't read minds. I don't know Bishop Easterling. I don't know the board of trustees over there. All I'm speaking to is institutional forces, incentive structures. That's all I can speak to. I can speak a little bit about, well, I'm trying not to speak out of my depth. I know a little bit about American politics and racial dynamics. That's it. That's all I'm speaking to here. The bishop reports willingness to work with every church, but the conference she leads refuses to hear the pleas for grace from church families. Now, one of the things that you get into with pastoral ministry and leadership is just because you don't make the decision somebody wants does not mean you're not listening. So I actually kind of wanted to stand up for the bishop here. Odds are the bishop and her leadership have listened. They just aren't going to decide what the conservatives want. They're not sympathetic with the conservative way of thinking through things. They're sitting in a position of power. They see no reason as to why they would be gracious about that, as Great Plains Annual Conference has been. They, they are gladly using the authority they have to squeeze these churches that want out. Um, in fact, she pointed out that the conference is entitled to 100% of the assessed property and is being quite generous in only demanding half the value of the buildings and property that faithful members have contributed over the centuries. Now, I'll tell you, this is something that rubs a lot of churches wrong, and I think it's for obvious reasons. The, the conferences see themselves in a place of authority because of this trust clause. It technically belongs to them. Technically, they could charge 100% of what it's worth. They're lucky we're only charging 50%. And in a way of speaking, they are totally right. And I would say the way of speaking that is is worldly. In a worldly way, you are seeking to get the greatest gain over people over whom you have power than you can. But I, I think that's a distinctly non-Christian way of going through negotiations. I actually, I think liberals and conservatives alike should be able to identify that mentality on the front end as distinctly and openly non-Christian. Just because you can squeeze somebody does not mean that you should. In fact, the godly virtue of mercy is defined by the notion that you can harm, you can squeeze, and you choose not to. So the, the fact that conference leadership in many places is choosing not to be merciful, not to be gracious, does have theological implications that are very upsetting and problematic. So, um, oh, the other part here being, you know, they've been paying millions of dollars in apportionments this whole time. They built these churches. They paid for the building of these churches. They paid for the upkeep of these churches. It really just seems nasty to say, you built these, you paid for these, you've been giving us money this whole time, and it's ours, and you're lucky we don't pay you, charge you 100%. It just seems very cruel. Um, let's see. Oh, I don't want to focus on that. Um, it is our most estimation that most, if not all, of the churches who have sought to litigate have done so reluctantly, but see no other option available if they wish to leave the United Methodist Church. I, I think that that needs to be just stated over and over again. I think anytime there's a lawsuit, the temptation on the part of people uh, who don't like it is to say, oh, those other people, they're just so litigious, they just want to do this. And I, I think, uh, you know, it's like a divorce or an abortion. Nobody wants one. Nobody goes, ooh, I want this. And nobody goes, oh, I really want to take these people to court. If they do, they just don't know what they're talking about. Nobody enjoys being in a legal process like this. So, um, yeah, that, it's important to look at the conservatives. I mean, <laughs> they're doing this because they don't have money. These are not people with a bunch of money that are using it to beat on, 
to use Bishop Bickerton's uh, metaphor, the United Methodist Church is not the bullied fat kid. Um, if anything, um, these these uh, evangelical churches that do not hold the keys to power are the bullied fat kid. Um, it gets back into the protocol there, talks about options. The only option other than paying this exorbitant fee is walking away from sanctuaries for which generations have sacrificed, and that is a worst-case scenario. That is something Christians should be willing to do, but the fact that they're put in that position is just really unfortunate and nasty. Uh, raising six- and seven-figure ransom demands is not an option for most. So they admit near the end of this uh, passage that the Judicial Council did decide in favor of 2553 being the only way out, um, but there's just a clear moral issue at play here. So they're not, you know, the, the conference is having, oh, here's what's in the Book of Discipline, and here's what state law is, and here's what we're going to uphold. The other side knows they're right, and they're not having the conversation on those grounds. They're having the conversation on the grounds of, aren't we, aren't you Christian? Isn't that something that we're still saying we all are? Is there really a reason why things need to be this litigious and nasty? Is there a reason why we have to take you to court in order to get you to be more gracious with us? Um, Breaks our hearts. Okay, so they use that emotive language again, that our trustees care so little about local missions. So it's this holding hostage thing again. The The institution says, if you leave, you take away money and manpower for local missions. The WCA is saying, we care about missions. That so, uh, so many conference churches choose to use the 2553 process, so few choose to use the process. is not a sign of conference health, but rather confirmation that the additional requirements are beyond the ability of many churches to pay, which I already said. And then they, they do this exhortation at, at the end. Yes, we should have love. Love is a two-way street. We want to love you. Would you lovingly let us go more graciously? Which I, I'm sympathetic to, obviously. I think down the line, I think 10 years down the line, everybody will say, yeah, that really did get too nasty. You know, they, they really didn't have to be as... We didn't, I think a lot of liberals will say, we really didn't have to be as nasty as we were. It was just a time where emotions ran high. And I think, forget, I mean, I think there's a Christian response to that, but I think there's just, once upon a time, adults were known for having, knowing the difference between our feelings and what the situation required. And it's only very recently in American public discourse that people justified bad behavior by adults to, by saying emotions are running high. You know, and it's not that adults have never given in to emotion, but it's that we had the sense as a civilization to know that we cannot excuse bad behavior, immoral behavior, abusive, dysfunctional behavior by saying, oh, they were very emotional at the time. It's only very recently that, that, that people have thought that that's a valid excuse for bad behavior, and I think that that speaks to the decadence and decay of um, our current moral fabric in our nation and apparently within our denomination. So um, I think this just ends with an exhortation um, to conference. Well, I, I want to continue to give attaboys to conference leadership like Great Plains Annual Conference, which has been gracious. And I just really hope that there is a, a reassessment of the situation on the part of these more hostile conferences to say, do I really want to, to look at myself in the mirror 10 years out and say, I did this to these churches because these churches are going to die. You know, if you don't let them go or if you 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 tax them into to poverty or 
it's not going to be good for them. Even if they stay, eventually they leave, you know, and I'm very, I, I think maybe something, well, we will fill those buildings with new believers. And I just think you're delusional. You know, I, I don't think there's any conference really um, that's that's growing like this. Maybe North Georgia, but after what North Georgia pulled, you know, just holding them all in, and then as the, the left bureaucracy squeezes its hand in and makes people uncomfortable, I just don't see any way that they're going to be able to fill those buildings that go empty now. I, I don't know what the institution is thinking a lot of the time. It just seems like a terrible long-term strategy keeping us in this way. So um, anyway, pray for the United Methodist Church. Pray for Bishop Easterling and the boards of trustees that she serves over. Uh, pray for the evangelicals um, and the liberals and everybody else in between. But then the larger issue um, that impacts not just the UMC is uh, I'm just really depressed at the way in which black and white congregations are still so culturally separate and the the level of suspicion that's still in place i just think it, that is a real failure of um, the legacy of 1960 civil rights and i i don't know what can be done but i really hope that there is a different future in store for us than consistently i just think it's going to be really nasty if we keep going down this route and i really don't want it i don't think there's going to be a black and white section in heaven uh, I don't think that, that God chooses favorite cultures or least favorite cultures. Uh, I think the way of the kingdom is colorblind, and living into that means putting aside racial prejudice and resentment. Um, and I think we at least have to aim at that together. So that's the note I want to end on. I just, I'm, I'm deeply invested in the colorblind picture melting pot of America in the future. Let's keep fighting for that together, whether we're the, in the United Methodist Church or the Global Methodist Church, or some other church, we cannot have a race-segregated future. All right, this has been Plain Spoken. Thanks for joining me. If you liked it, share it, bring it to the attention of somebody else. Um, I'm hoping that this level of discourse is helpful and uh, works to the betterment of the Methodist tradition overall. So pray for me. Bye.